Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. Welcome to this week's episode of One for the Road and I am so excited to announce that I've partnered up with Coach Helen Bennett who specialises in helping people to stop losing control with food. And for the next three months, Helen is offering all of my listeners 10% off any of her courses, classes, and even her private coaching programs. You can find her on Instagram at Coach Helen Bennett or go to her website, which is helenbennett.co. I'll put the link in the show notes. Helen is compassionate and very practical, and she's not afraid to tell it how it is. So don't forget, go to our website or Instagram and use promo code SOBERDAVE to claim your 10% discount now. Now back to the show, and on this week's episode, we have the wonderful Alex Norwood-Hill, aka the Sober Sommelier, and his story is fascinating, hilarious, but equally inspirational and motivational. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So good morning, Alex. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's a real joy having you on today because uh, we've met several times in the real world uh, and we've been planning this for a long time, haven't we? So it's lovely to have you on. Uh, How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm great. It's, it's, I'm really pleased to see you, and it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely to finally get together and 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 have a chat on your pod. So yeah, it is indeed. It's an honour. I've heard your story a few times on the lives we've done, so I think it's going to be quite an episode. Because uh, <laughs> anyone that knows you knows that you're quite a character. So it, it'd be great to wind it all the way back to the beginning, as we do. Uh, and go over what it's like for you growing up, where you grew up, and then go from there. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of origin story, as it were. So, yeah, I grew up, I suppose, I'm a country boy at heart, but I was actually, uh, you know, my formative years were in London as well. So I'm kind of a slight split personality. So, because um, my mum's family are very much country country people um, in Warwickshire, horses and that kind of thing. Um and but my dad uh he's very much uh he, he was actually from up north and uh worked in property and you know came down from the north moved to london and was kind of wheeling and dealing in london in the late 60s and 70s so i was born in born in london born at st thomas's hospital yeah so i kind of had a had a bit of a, a joyous in some respects um uh, kind of early early formative years because i was you know in london going to you know prep school and stuff in london but then at weekends we'd be down in the countryside so it was it was it was quite privileged and blessed but it was also quite um uh let's say colorful just because of what was going on between my mum and my dad both fiery characters um and you know their they had their 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 relationship was a bit of a roller coaster to be honest uh and I, me being an empath and quite sensitive was very much in the middle um and you know often trying to kind of resolve things even when i didn't really know what was going on if i knew there was there were there were issues and stuff going on i'd, I'd try and resolve it and try and support my mum but um i think i think a lot of a lot of stuff that happened later on was was picked up in those formative years because it because there was this kind of tempestuous relationship going on but generally a pretty a pretty happy you know, happy childhood, loving summers in the countryside, uh, loving my sport with my dad. Um, and then I was kind of, was hoping to go to, um, school in London when I was 13 to St. Paul's. And I kind of, I like my strongest subject was English. And the, uh, one thing that I got just below the mark to get in for my common entrance was English. So I didn't get to St. Paul's. So I was packed off 
to uh, rugby school, you know, the big public school, which um, my uncle ha- had been to. And actually that was in some respects, you know, not ideal for me at that time because it was a big school. I was quite cocky because I'd been, I'd gone to prep school in London and I wasn't, I wasn't going to conform. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I basically was quite, quite badly bullied because I just didn't want to conform. Um, and I was in a house that was kind of falling apart. It was a bit like t- uh, Tom, Tom Brown school days. It was like the, the sixth formers were running the house because the, uh, the head, the housemaster was, a, was an alcoholic, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his nickname was Pisso. Because he was always pissed. <laughs> but um, but anyway, yeah, on my 15th birthday, um, I'd been hanging around with some some guys in my year and we were smoking the odd joint and what have you. And uh, anyway, it turned out that the person that we were getting this this gear from, this, you know, marijuana or whatever, happened to be supplying the whole of the top of the school. So um, so he got, got nabbed by the police. And uh, on my 15th birthday, uh, the matron came down and uh, she said, oh, um, the chaplain wants to see you uh, over in his house. And this was literally on my 15th birthday. So I, I, I bowled over there. I had like a load of cash because I got cash for my birthday. I had a packet of cigarettes in my top pocket. You know, I thought I was real Jack the Laird, you know, 15. And I went into the, uh, the chaplain's house and, <laughs> and, uh, the chaplain says, now before we start, I just want to, you think of me as your lawyer. You can tell me anything. You know, this is my, my first kind of brush with real institution and, and like a bit like Russell Brand says, you know, very skeptical of kind of like the establishment and institutions after that, because he said, Oh, you just, you can tell me anything. And I said, okay, that's fine. Uh, you know, and he said, now happy birthday. I said, thanks. Now I want to introduce you to PC Jones and PC Johnson from the drug squad. And they're going to interview you under caution. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just like, what? You know, it's like, like that was like literally like stomach pit of my stomach kind of just fell out. It's like, Oh my God. You know? So obviously they caught this chap that was dealing to the, the sixth formers and he had kind of given all these names. And obviously me and this, my, this, this chap, uh, who was actually a, a Nigerian prince, uh, and a few others in the lower years who really hadn't done anything. You know, we'd smoked the odd joint. We weren't really involved, but they, they just wanted a, a kind of complete clean out. So, um, so the slight thing was, so they emptied my pockets and of course I had all this cash and then I, and then I had a check in my wallet, which I'd totally forgotten about, which I, you know, a bit like when you're, when you're in the fifth form and you look up to the sixth form girls, cause there were girls in the sixth form, I'd run an errand to get some stuff for this, this girl. And she, instead of giving, giving me the cash, she'd give me a check. So I had her check in my wallet. <laughs> So suddenly I'm the Pablo Escobar of the fifth form because I've got this check. I've been, <laughs> I've been doing deals and it's like, it was completely ridiculous. But anyway, um, yeah. So long story short, uh, you know, I was, I was kicked out along with 20 other. It was the last big kind of expulsion of lots of people. And so that was, that was pretty brutal because, you know, I remember, you know, I remember <laughs> the housemaster saying, okay, we're going to put you in quarantine while we sort this out. Come up into the house and you can wait here with you and you and this uh, Nigerian prince. And it was just at the start of exams. And, uh, and I remember he goes, Oh, you're, but, um, I got a telegram from your, your family for your birthday. And, <laughs> you know, I'm in quarantine. Like <laughs> they said, Oh, come down. There's a, there's a phone call for you. Uh, it's your mum wishing you a happy birthday. <laughs> so. So he's got the phone. He's like, um, now, Mrs. Hill, before, I, before we start speaking, I'd just like to say, um, you know, your son's been involved in a cannabis resin and he has, he's currently, you know, in, in quarantine. But anyway, here he is to wish him happy birthday. <laughs> and I get the phone and my mom's just like crying. Ah! And she goes, Oh, don't worry. Whatever happens, we, I believe you. We, you know, and then I just get my dad rips the phone. He's like, what the fuck's been going on? Wait till I was like, Oh no, you know, so. But in a way, it was kind of like that, that, that whole kind of just the rug being pulled and like leaving that, leaving that school was really hard. And I actually, I found, I went and actually was because it was two weeks before the end of term, I was sent off to a, 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 a hill farm up in Snowdonia because my parents wanted to keep me out of the way. They don't want to explain, oh, why is your son home early? <laughs> you know, he's been kicked out of school. And I was, um, I was w- working on a hill farm in Snowdonia and, um, you know, just having time for reflection and, and just kind of going, sitting in these large quarries and just like thinking my life was over, but actually my life wasn't over, you know? And, and ironically, I went to a really good school after that called Bromsgrove, which I flourished in because it was a smaller school. I wasn't bullied and I had a kind of new lease of life. And in a way that's kind of been a pattern for my life in, in lots of ways, really. Um, but, but certainly from, from rugby, that's where my drinking and, uh, and kind of drug 
you know, and, and, and really what it was doing was, you know, there was a lot of unhappiness. My parents were going through a bitter divorce. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I, yeah, I was trying to kind of, you know, your hormones are racing, you're trying to work things out and, and just drugs and alcohol become a way of coping. And that in a way was where, it, where it started for me. And, um, you know, I managed to get my A-levels, go up to Manchester University. In my gap year, I was working, I worked in Paris. I got accepted to be the first, um, English, uh, trainee, stagiaire, um, for Yves Saint Laurent in Paris, because I was going into the fashion industry at that time. That's what I thought was going to be in clothes and fashion. I think really it was just because I fancied all the supermodels. It was a time when, you know, the, that, that freedom video had just come out in 1990, George Michael, you know, all the supermodels and, and, and that, that, and that was kind of, you know, my obsession really. <laughs> But at the same time, it kind of led me into that fashion industry, and and I managed to go out and uh, and spend a year in Paris uh, working at Yves Saint Laurent, which was sounds which awful, was... mate. I was just <laughs> reflecting back on my life there. That I went to a really awful school that I was bullied every day, and ended up getting a job in a carpet shop in Wimbledon, <laughs> so. Yeah, quite a contrast, really. <laughs> yeah, contrast, but at the same time, we were probably using, you know, drinking and, you, you know, kind of, you know, using the same alcohol and drugs at the same time, possibly. I mean, certainly, um, I didn't really experiment with drugs. I mean, I, I after the, until really I got to university because, um, yeah, I had a great time, great time in Paris. It was really eye opening. And, and then I, and then I got to Manchester and I was, I, I, it's funny because a lot of the mates that I knew in London were going to Manchester because that was like the inn. And, and I hadn't really thought what I wanted to do. I was just like, okay, well, I looked for a course that was vaguely fashion related and, and it turned out to be management and marketing of textiles at uh, the University of Manchester Science and Technology, <laughs> which doesn't sound very glamorous. It's a bit, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're in, you're in a, a really grotty part of this science park in a grotty part of Manchester. It's not quite Paris and Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> so, um, so I remember, I remember pitching up and, uh, and I, and I meet, knew some of my mates from London and stuff. And they were like, Oh, we're all going to Manchester. Yeah. It's great. Great. Meet you there. And I remember queuing up in this beautiful building at Manchester University, not, not you missed where I was going. And I was in the queue and, and chatting and really so happy to be. Oh, this place is fantastic. It's not as grassy as I thought. And then I get to the front of the queue <laughs> and they're like, I give over my student card and they're like, uh, terribly sorry. You're not actually at this university. You're at the science park <laughs> down oh, the road. <laughs> I would queue up. I was <laughs> and I had to do the walk of shame. And there was, oh, oh. <laughs> it's like, go on, off you go down to the science park. <laughs> and I was like, Oh dear, that was not a good look. So yeah, that was quite funny. Um, but anyway, funnily enough, you know, I, I actually, uh, you know, I spent the first year, I mean, part of the, that degree was studying chemistry, uh, for, for the, like the, the dying of, of, um, of fibers, you know, dying of, so dying of clothes and you had to understand chemistry. And I spent that whole, that every Wednesday afternoon, me and this guy, John, I used to go to his, um, his room, uh, his, you know, his, his digs and we used to smoke a quarter of hash and watch with Nile and I every Wednesday. That was it. We would, we'd watch with Nile and I the, for the whole year. So, so basically that was, that was a kind of set thing we did. So I can, I can recite that whole, the little whole script backwards, you know, but, um, but what it meant was when the time came for the exam, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't fit for purpose. So, um, I remember being, uh, I had the night before the retakes and I'd, I'd, I'd seen a friend of mine. He said, look, if you're not going to get past this, you're going to have to retake the year. And I was like, there's no way I'm retaking the year. And he said, well, there is something you could do. If you manage to get yourself on a new course before you get your results, you don't have to retake the year and you could end up doing a course that you quite like. So, uh, and he said, and by the way, there's a free rave in the Hume Crescents. Um, do you want to come? <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up going to a free rave, uh, in the Hume Crescents before my retake. And, uh, I think, yeah, a lot of magic mushrooms and acid and ecstasy was consumed. And I remember. <laughs> seeing the sun up and it was it was it was something out of mad max they had it was a bit like burning man but in very much there was this this um artist create collective called the dogs of heaven and they put on this incredible they they had a giant boat that was burnt there were people coming down death slides off the off this because they were going to demolish these crescents in hume which was famous crescents near where the man city ground these old man city ground used to be and i remember i was like just dancing on that stage uh at eight in the morning and the sun coming up and you know 19 this is 1991 feeling 
immense sense of i mean that's my love of dance music and my love of like uh you know just kind of yeah music and dancing really was kicked in then and and that freedom involved with that and that freedom of spirit which i have now obviously without the drugs and the alcohol but so i remember (laughs) obviously i went to the retake and i could barely kind of my hands kept going through the desk so it was really hard to kind of write write the exam (laughs) so so the next day i am I went to see the tutor of this course called Comparative Religion, uh, which my friend was on. He said, it's amazing. You get to study all the isms, Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Jainism, uh, Islam, uh, you know, Judaism. Yeah, all amazing. Uh, uh, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt. So I said, wow, that sounds amazing. And by that stage, my mind was kind of being quite expanded by the psychedelics I was taking. So I was like, wow, this is fantastic. So I went in to see the course tutor. Uh, this is two days after that rave. And I think I've said to you before, I kind of walked in and sat down with him and I had the Jesus eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, and I said, I really think this, you know, this would be amazing. And he just took one look at me. I said, I think you've come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that connection, you know, it was just like, and I was obviously quite expanded in my consciousness at that point. So, so yeah, so I ended up, uh, swapping. Uh, I got accepted onto that course and I ended up getting a degree in comparative religion and I did it for three, three years. So I was there at Manchester for four years, having a wild time. Um, and yeah, it was fantastic. It was an amazing course, but you know, during that time, I still had my ups and downs, you know, emotionally, psychologically, you know, constantly, you know, because of the roller coaster, really, you know, the roller coaster Mm. of, of using alcohol, using drugs, lots of highs, but lots of lows. Um, and I think that that kind of continued really um, uh, when I left, you know, I left university. Uh, I worked in the hospitality industry. I went out to Miami. I set, helped set up a restaurant in Miami for three years and was DJing continually, you know, doing, having an amazing time, you know, and don't get me wrong. You know, I was, I was very lucky because of, you know, the, the, the family I was involved with and the people I, I was working with. You know, I got to to meet some amazing people, and Miami was very exciting at that time. This is ninety six to ninety nine, setting up this restaurant for, as I mentioned before, it's for the actor Michael Caine, uh, called the South Beach Brasserie. Because I, when I left, I was working at the canteen in Chelsea Harbour as a as a bar manager and mixologist, and that is where, in a way, by a happy accident, I learnt uh, about flavour, I learnt about taste, I learnt how to hold space as a as a barman as a mixologist i learned uh, i won a few competitions i won a a, comp- a martel competition i won the best bloody mary in my south beach in miami in 1997 best bloody mary mix you know and um so it's funny how things like doing the course in comparative religion and studying about the amazing religions and philosophies of the world and then like learning about how to make a, a wonderful drink has all in my sobriety all come together in terms of my healing work and in terms of my, my drink work and, you know, yeah, just, just, it's, it's, it's amazing how things kind of come together sometimes, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day, actually, I was listening to that book, um, Atomic Habits and, and he was talking about that ice cube where, um, it would sit on the table and you could be 21 degrees, 22, 23, 24, nothing would change. But when it gets to 32 degrees, suddenly it changes. Mm. And this is like that in life, isn't it? Where people, they get to a place where they start looking at their relationship with alcohol and they experiment maybe for a few days or weeks and then they go back and then they end up, I always say to people when they end up going, oh, I'm useless, I can't do it. And I, I say to them, no, because that's all experience. That All those efforts before are experience, and this is maybe the full-time job. You know, mm. it's all these things in the past. And you telling your story there, I'm glued to it, actually, because you're a fascinating character anyway, and there's more to come, I know that. Um, <laughs> but it is funny how you've got all these bits of the puzzle and they get brushed aside and they come together at the end and click into place. It's it really interesting, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and I'm, I really feel actually in a way it's really super to have this podcast now because I think those pieces are now all really clicking in, mm. you know, because I'm a lot more kind of grounded and, you know, just, just it, kind of hoiger, very much kind of just being happy in my skin 
uh, and seeing the various pieces uh, in my sobriety, but also my whole life story, my whole journey of just clicking in and they all, and, and, and it's kind of, it, there's less trying, there's just more being. And it just, and, and in that being, um, things are just magnetizing and things that, 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 um, you know, I want to bring into the world or want to share or want to do are, just, are happening in a much more fluid. I'm, it's, there's less strain. It's just like, okay, well, this is, you know, and I think, um, there's more fluidity, isn't there? Yes. And I think that when we're stuck in the hamster wheel of drinking, it takes up all our bandwidth. Yes. So we, we're stuck, aren't we? And, and we can't think of anything ahead. It's about the next drink, the next drink. Mm. And I think when you stop drinking, it clears the bit. I always describe it as the Michael McIntyre's man draw where there's old Nokia 3310 phones <laughs> and batteries and keys. You ain't Good got phone. a clue, but yeah, but you, you don't want to get rid of them just in case. But then mm. when you clear the man draw, it frees up all that space. Mm. And I feel that in sobriety is that it's like opening the big door to your heart and then you let the world in if you want to. And mm. things begin to happen and mm. they have for you, which we will explain later on. But all right, so let's wind it back again. You're mm. there. What happened after that? Like, and by the way, Michael Caine's story. Um, he lived on Chelsea Harbour, didn't he? He had a yeah. flat there, and I I did the carpets in flats. So there's no, a little no, bit. You did, yeah, no, you I didn't. Did. So 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 just to kind of for full disclosure, when I was at university, I was at uh, Manchester with uh, his daughter uh, Natasha, and we started dating. So basically, uh, that's how I kind of got you know connection into that family, and 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 you know, um, so it was it was. Uh, very interesting kind of coming out of university and then being just kind of thrown into that world. But, but, but in a way it was good because I, I wasn't self-conscious. I wasn't kind of, and because I'd had, I, you know, there was so much stuff, toxic stuff at the time going on with my mum's divorce, uh, my mum and dad's divorce. I kind of latched on to them in a way because it was just like, Oh, you know, and yes, it was glamorous and exciting. And yes, I got to meet my heroes and it was, but but at the same time, I didn't lose myself in it because I saw a lot of people that did lose themselves in that kind of world of fame and the hangers on. And, you know, it's very enticing, but it's also it's in an intoxicating, but it's also very damaging. And a lot of people are in it for the wrong reasons. And it's a bit like, you know, you get kind of how many how many VIP rooms do you get to when you open the door? And it's like, I want to go into the next one. I go into the next one. And then you get there and it's just kind of. You're just in there on your own going, is this it? <laughs> is this what fame is? You know, here I am sitting there, you know, in this room with everything I, you know, all these, you know, nice things, but I'm just quite lonely because it's just kind of like, and and where are all the hangers on now? So it was, it was fascinating. And, but, but it, what was very nice was actually just meeting a lot of these people who were successful. Yes, they were well known, but I was meeting them as me. This young guy had just left university. I didn't want anything from them. I could just be myself. Oh, this is Natasha's boyfriend. You know, he's working at the re- in the restaurant, and I, and it was great. You know, working at the canteen. You know, Marco Pierre White was the chef at the time, and uh, he then subsequently left, but I carried on. And um, yeah, it's, it was just you know making martinis for for various James Bonds. You know, I mean, making a martini for Sean Connery that's quite that's quite quite a cool thing to do. <laughs> or um, and I think I've, I think. I, <laughs> I think I've made, I, I was thinking about it. I think I've made a martini for at least three James Bonds. So that's, that's, you know, that's pretty, you know, so I think it's, yeah, Piers, uh, Sean and Roger. So I've made, wow. so, you know, and, and, and met them socially as well. And so, I mean, one of the great stories of that era, and I, there were plenty, well, two of them. First, the, the, one of my favorites was, um, I mean, we would go down to his lovely, their lovely house in, in Little Stoke at the weekend. And, um, and it, and it was wonderful. You know, Michael and Shakira were amazing hosts and they would always have, you know, just do lovely lunches on a Sunday. It was so nice. And then we'd go and watch Chelsea because we were both Chelsea fans. So we'd go and sit up in the, in the, in the den, smoke cigars and watch Chelsea. So, you know, cool, just cool stuff like that, you know, very just normal family stuff. But obviously, you know, the lunch guests would always be really interesting, you know, so it's, the door would open and it's like contestant number two. Oh, it's Joan Collins. <laughs> Hello, darlings. You know, contestant number three. Oh, it's Michael Winner or, you know, all these incredible guests would be there at lunch. And, and the conversations were always fascinating and interesting and, um, and, and fun and just, and then the gardens were so beautiful. I mean, there were kind of in a way very halcyon magical days, 
But I'll never forget one day when I was working at the canteen and and sometimes I would stay in that flat in Chelsea Harbour just because it was easy and that was like, you know, I'd been working. But I remember one day um, Natasha said, oh, a friend of dad's will give you a lift down to Sunday because it was their house was in Littlestoke just near Henley. I said, oh, you can you can go and get a lift. So I said, oh, great. Okay. And it didn't, she didn't say who it was. And I remember her like cycling, cycling to this address in Eaton Square and chained my mountain bike up to the railings at Eaton Square, you know, as you do, and uh, knocked on the door and uh, and the door opened and it was Roger Moore. It was like, it's like, great. Oh, I mean, we'd met before, but it was just so brilliant. It was like, da-da. Uh, like, oh. <laughs> like hello oh yes yeah, nice to see you shall we go but oh that was just so brilliant and we had and so it was just me and him for like an hour and a half or whatever hour and 20 minutes in in his souped up he had this american car doing 115 120 the whole way like didn't i was like well yes if someone stops him what are these gonna say uh, yes i was speeding what are you what are you going to do about it i've got an important job to do <laughs> uh, it was just like and he just told the smuttiest jokes like the whole way like really smutty and just had me in absolute tears of laughter and just having that i don't know an hour and 15 minutes like on a podcast almost but just me and him in that car was something i will always cherish because it was so like just unexpected it's like who's behind door number one so that was really cool and, and something very lovely. Um, and, and another, another time in Miami, we went to, um, it was Quincy Jones's birthday party and it was being hosted by Chris Blackwell, uh, from Island Records. And it was very intimate. It was at the Marlin Hotel and, uh, and we arrived, the four of us and we came in through the door and, uh, yeah, Quincy Jones opened the door. Hey. And actually he shared his birthday with Michael Kane. And so they were, I think, so they, there was, uh, it was really lovely and we were welcomed in. And, um, this is 1997, I think, 96, 97. And I remember Shakira, she pointed over to the seat and, and, um, on sitting on this kind of, it was in this really lovely lounge and there was a pool table, MTV was blaring and there was all these staff making drinks. And Shakira said, Oh, why don't you go over and go and introduce yourself to the kids over there? <laughs> and, or, the, you know, the young, the young folk over there and pointed to this little sofa. And on the sofa was, uh, Johnny Depp, Kate Moss, Naomi Campbell, Bono, and Stephen Dorff. And if you <laughs> go and introduce yourself, go and just say, go say hello. <laughs> okay. We'll go and say hello to the young, young folk, you know. So it was just like, you know, and, and they were all really nice. And, 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 but what was so cool at that party, was Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson, who are Easy Riders, one of my favourite films of all time. And getting in, you know, that was like, that was it. Getting introduced to those two, it was just like, right, I'm done. That's it. I've, I've, I'm well, happy now. To, to be honest, mate, I think I'm done. I, I'm uh, recording a <laughs> podcast this afternoon. It's a big one as well. And I literally think my story's my boring story <laughs> no, in the whole not, world compared to this. What? This no. is really killing me. Like, <laughs> no, I'm literally slivering <laughs> into the bottom of my chair now. Like, oh, my God. What am I going to no, say the after thing is, this? I, but I mean, I was in my twenties. I was twenty three, twenty four. I was just didn't, you know. I, you know, you don't, you don't appreciate something until afterwards when you're just, you know. It was just, I was just, you know, in the in that in that moment and helping set up the restaurant and just being in Miami. And it was a Miami at that time was very heady because, you know, Island Records. Chris Blackwell had his place uh, in Jamaica. They'd all just come back on his on his plane from Jamaica, and there were so there were all these people. Um, and I think Michael was filming uh, Blood and Wine with Jennifer Lopez and Jack Nicholson. So all these people around and, you know, it was just one of those things. So yeah. in- interesting. Yeah, well, I once saw him wrestled Oliver Reed in a wine bar in Wimbledon. So, so I tried <laughs> well, that's and pretty good. a little bit. He, well, uh, <laughs> he lived in Wimbledon. Yeah, but, uh, you know, talking of Oliver Reed, you know, I remember because oh, I kind of... I know I grew up no I'm just saying I grew up around, you know, I was like went to school in Chelsea and used to and lived for a while in South Ken and there was a pub we used to go to called the Feeney, which is smartened up now, but it was, um, you know, old, uh, George Best used to go in there a lot. And we used to see him in Poochie Pizzas. And that, and, you know, we're talking coming back in a way to, yeah, while I, while I was having all this amazing time in Miami, I was still, you know, I had a big cocaine problem, probably. I would say I was drinking a lot. I was, I was working in hospitality using, using drugs and alcohol a lot. So while it was kind of this, all this glamour and all this amazing, underneath it was someone who was you know my relationship with natasha was kind of breaking down i was i was breaking down because i was kind of you know there was a lot of anxiety about what i was going to do next 
Um, and so this, you know, I was using, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol and there was a very unhealthy relationship with both of them. So it might be all like, Oh, this is amazing. But actually underneath it was someone who was quite troubled and going through, going through a lot of, um, difficulties and a lot of emotional, uh, uh and physical and, and, you know, lots of challenges, you know, because I was regulating my emotions using substances and using alcohol. So, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of say. No, oh, I know it, is- it paints a really glamorous, exotic picture, doesn't it? But yeah, do you do you know why you got to how you did with your drugs and alcohol? Like, was it part of the I social think- scene you was in, or was it, it down to I you? Think- I know. I think I think it was a combination. I think it was readily available. Uh, it was prevalent in that industry in drinks and hospitality and restaurants. You know, the chefs are using it. Everyone's using it behind the bar. Uh, and it just becomes the norm. But also, I think as well, for me, I, you know, what I subsequently learned with get, getting into therapy was, you know, I was using it to regulate my emotions. You know, I was using it to, to deal with, you know, the, the trauma of my, some of the childhood trauma. Um, you know, one of the things that we haven't really touched upon, which is quite a big thing in my life is, you know, um, when I was in my kind of late, well, late teen, no, just early, late teens, early twenties, um, you know, I, it came to light that my father that brought me up was actually, um, uh, uh, not my biological father. So, and I, that was something, a big thing that I had, te- had to take on. Mm. Um, and, and actually in a way that did, you know, for my twenties, that was something quite huge because obviously, you know, if you think you're, you're one person, then you found out you're not, you know, mm. it's, it's something big to deal with. And there were reasons why that, that happened. And it's, it's a long story, which I'm not necessarily going to go into today, but the point is, you know, I was, I was coming to terms with that. And, you know, and, and the beautiful thing is I did actually, you know, later on in my late twenties, discover who my biological father was found his family and then found him. He was actually living in Canada, working as a doctor. And I, so I, you know, there was a happy ending, but, you know, drugs and alcohol were a way of, if I wanted to feel a certain way that I would, I could, you know, and it would, for a moment, it might placate or it might lift me up or make me feel, but ultimately there was always a payback and a come down, you know, and there always is, isn't there? It's the temporary solution, isn't it? So, Mm. How did that manifest throughout your twenties? Then your your drugs and drinking. Uh, well, I think well, what happened? I think what was particularly hard was when it's kind of a, the, uh, I came back from Miami, um, had split up with Natasha, and was like almost back to ground zero from being like the, you know mm. the glamour of the glamour of, of Miami, and it's like okay, so I had to reset, and and I think I'm um, you know like the kind of alcohol use didn't stop the drug use did stop because i was kind of like resetting i was back in london um i got myself a job in in events uh like large large corporate events so i was taking the stuff from the hospitality into that and um uh, but i you know it was quite went into quite a spiral of depression you know because it obviously the coming from that whole thing in miami the the drug use you know finding out about my dad having to process that and, you know, and splitting up in this relationship, it was just like, Oh my God. And also it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people who are wanted to know you because of your association with, you know, this family and what you were doing, suddenly they all just disappear. You know, if you're not, you know, and that, and that was a great lesson about authenticity, about who are your real friends, you know, or, you know, the, the, the veneer that you see uh, is certainly in, in a, yeah, in a certain world of, of kind of glamorous world, there's a lot of people that are there, not necessarily for the right reasons, or don't have your best interest at heart, or don't really care unless that there's and then unless they can, you know, put their foot on you to get somewhere else. So that all of that kind of all happening in your late twenties is a lot. And so, you know, alcohol and drugs were 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 for me that crutch and also helped me. But but ultimately what they were doing was just continuing this cycle and i did i did have a uh, some I, I i got i took prozac for two years in my late 20s which actually did help and a, a lot of people it doesn't help it did help i saw a, a an amazing uh 
um, analytical psycholo- uh, psychiatrist called Dorothy Stephens, who was very good, but wasn't really for me because that kind of, uh, it was kind of, I think Freudian kind of it just kept, kept going back a lot to really, you know, childhood and just lift digging up childhood. And I felt we were just going around and so it wasn't giving me the tools, which I later got, um, through my sobriety to, to function in the world and to function without drugs and alcohol. So, so, you know, the, the kind of early twenties and late twenties were pretty much a car crash. The middle bit was kind of glamorous and exciting, but, um, but I kind of, you know, ended up in my kind of coming into my thirties a little bit lost. Um, and, you know, ended up, you know, in a, in a codependent relationship with, uh, with my first wife, you know, we, we were both going through our stuff and kind of came together as people who were using drugs and alcohol regularly. And that pretty much went, you know, for that relationship for 10 years, um, until we separated, uh, in 2000 and I think it was 2008, 2009. So, um, yeah, it, it in a way, 15 to 45, there was some amazing highlights, you know, and I, I kind of moved out of London in my early 30s because London, I just didn't want to be there anymore because I just saw through it. I saw through a lot of the, all, the, all the people that were all over me like a rash. A lot of them had dropped me like a stone and it was just like, whoa, this is, you know, and I just I just wanted to extract myself and being, having grown up on and off in the countryside, it's like, right, and I moved to Kent uh, and created a beautiful life down in Kent, uh, which which has been great because it's only an hour from London, and I, I retrained in property. And you know, within within five or six years of working in property, I'd ended up uh, buying my own company, running my own estate agency, which I still own and run. And um, so, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey, but I think it's so fascinating how. Um, not unhappy, but that actually I was never really dealing with my stuff. It's like Mm -hmm. alcohol is, alcohol is, is, is really the symptom, not the cause of our stuff, you know, of what, of why we uh, is, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, it's, it's not the cause of our, why we drink. It's, it's the symptom, you know, and it's, and, and, and I think it's only when I decided, you know, okay, I'm going to do something about this. Um, because also as I, you know, I, I met Catherine, my wife, and, um, you know, and we married in 2015 and I was still drinking then. And I was still, you know, the, and I was still using drugs as well, but it, yeah, I think a lot of, a friend of hers said, um, they, she, she did a speech and said, Oh, that then the song she played there, maybe trouble ahead, you know, and then we, and she was taking this book. We got married in Italy and she was taking a book on how long our, our marriage would last. And she was like, three months, six months, a year, <laughs> you know, and like she was joking, but it was kind of, you know, I look back at photos of me then and I, I just, I, I mean, particularly not, not the wedding because I'd slimmed down a bit, but afterwards and I was, you know, I mean, I know, you know, some of the photos you've seen of yourself when you were still drinking and it's just like, whoa, who is that yeah, person? Yeah. And seeing the eyes as well, isn't it? It's not, you know, I look at the weight I was in that, but it's when I look at my eyes, I did a talk for Be Sober the other week. And just at the last minute, I said, oh, can mm. you add this to the memory stick? And then when we put it up on the screen, I looked at it and it literally took my breath away and it changed the whole direction of my talk that I was doing because I mm. looked at this image of myself on a big screen and mm. it's like, you poor bastard. Like mm. I just wanted to hug him and just say, look, look, listen, mm. you're going to sort this out, mate. Mm. It's going to be a bit of work. And it really, it did something to me. And then I did a talk last week somewhere and I felt the same. I, I think I've got to give these talks up because I'm too emotional. <laughs> I was like a blubbering mess. But it, it was good about that is it shows that I'm still connected with my story rather than moving away and thinking, yes. oh, I, I'll try and remember how it was, but, yeah. you know, now, blah, blah. So, but there, there's an Ibiza story. I believe is, that um, I is. think we would need to include in this. Okay. And that is probably part of the reason why you got sober. Yeah, that is. I mean, my, my kind of what thing, one of my things for me as well is I don't really get drunk. I can just like, I'm a bit like a Viking. I'll just carry on drinking. Like people just drop around me. I mean, and I mean, 
don't say I can't don't get drunk, but I just I'm just quite kind of like hardcore. So that was a problem as well. So I would just carry on and and, and the binges would get closer and closer, like whether it was a stag do or it was a cricket or rugby or this party or this festival. And then suddenly it's kind of like, you know, I'd be like, Oh, I'm gonna mow the lawn and I'd have a like a rum and coke and a, a line of coke in the uh in the garage, <laughs> go and get the lawnmower and have a quick line and a rum and coke and go and mow the lawn. And it's kind of you probably think you've probably got a pro- problem if you're having a line of coke to mow the lawn. I mean it was don't get me wrong, it was it certainly made it an interesting mow, but it was it was it's not it's not where you want to be, I don't think. And and you know, other situations like um I remember one night this is before, you know, obviously before Ibiza, but one night I decided to uh, stay up and watch the Super Bowl and do a DJ mix because I like, I was, you know, like to do my mixes. So I was watching the Super Bowl, polished off a bottle of um, Calvados and did my mix, I think. And then anyway, my wife found me at about four in the morning, unconscious, just on, just out cold on the kitchen floor. You know, the TV on, all the lights on, and I was just out cold, you know, drunk and, you know, really shocking. and. I kind of went to bed. I felt awful and I felt so guilty and like, Oh my God. Cause like the next morning I was supposed to be going to Heathrow to pick up my stepdaughter, um, with Catherine to, uh, cause she's come back from traveling, you know, which is quite a big deal. And I have, have a great relationship with my stepkids. So it's like, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, of course I got up late. Catherine had already gone. So, and I felt so awful. I was like, oh, and I was just like, you know, that feeling of like, oh God. And I just got into the car, should not have been going anywhere near a car, you know, still probably way over the limit. Got our two dogs, put the dogs into the car, drove to Heathrow. Okay. Cause I was feeling, and, and then when I got to Heathrow, I was like, what do I do with the dogs? So I basically took the dogs with me and I was going through Heathrow telling everyone they were trainee sniffer dogs. <laughs> so I could, so I was like going up in the lift, getting through into the terminal and the people were stopping me. Sorry, no dog. Oh, these are trainee sniffer dogs. Oh, on you go. So it's like ridiculous, you know, and I remember getting there and, and Kitty coming through the, uh, and I just, uh, and my, my wife's ex-husband was there as well. And he's just going to just imagine he was just like looking at me going, <laughs> what a moron you know like and that you know and and it was just kind of like and Catherine was just like mortified that I turned up and it was the dog looking so rough just smelling of Calvados and you know I mean it's just it's just not a good look it's just who 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 is this person who does that what an absolute see you next Tuesday (laughs) you know and um and I hands up I was being an absolute see you next Tuesday so um so yeah so it all led to, as we know, that that my the story to Ibiza, which was this. I went. I was organising a stag do for a friend of mine, and when we got out there, you know, things kind of took a turn, not as I thought they would. The group got split, and so I ended up going on a two man. It was like eight of us. I ended up going on what I call a two man stag do with um, this guy called uh, Marcus. is a Latvian guy, and uh, and he and I just went and had this adventure really because we were so pissed off with everyone, um, and we ended up. Uh, the night before we were going on a boat trip, it was the, the Saturday. We ended up in this beautiful villa opposite the island of Esvedra. And Esvedra is this rock, this beautiful, which is, represents the goddess Tanit, which is the sacred goddess of the island. Tanit is a bit like uh, Isis or um, Aphrodite, you know, just uh, ancient Phoenician goddess or uh, um, uh, like uh, Fatima. But basically this amazing goddess, and she is the spirit of the island. And this this island Esvedra off off Ibiza represents her and is also it was where supposed to be where a, a doorway to Atlantis and also where Odysseus on his journey um uh the Odyssey the sirens were supposed to have lured him and his ship um uh you know so so it's a very mystical energy and we were in this villa looking at Esvedra the night before and uh in this kind of beautiful infinity pool it's just like something was just there was some some energy and magic that was drawing me there anyway. And I, I was having the day before when we were in the port, I was having past life flashbacks of like be seeing myself on a, on a, like a ancient Spartan ship and seeing myself as a kind of warrior. And, you know, and I, and I kept saying to myself, I know why I had never been to Ibiza before, because this was the reason why I needed to go to Ibiza. Now there was, I wasn't ready and it does have a very powerful energy anyway. So the Sunday um i that night i ended up staying up you know and getting quite high but just just dancing about seeing the sun up and going into quite a kind of trance state 
and feeling very connected to to the island and to the spirits of the island, but didn't understand what it all meant. Then the next morning we took this boat and we were supposed to go to Formentera for lunch. We didn't. We ended up going to Esvedra. And as soon as the, the captain said we're going to Esvedra, I, I just got this huge vibration up my spine. I was like, oh, my God, something, something's going to happen. This is the whole reason for me being here. It's got nothing to do with this stag deer. Everything kind of suddenly became like a wallpaper. It was just tunnel vision to this this amazing rock and this connection to this goddess. So we, we were going towards the island, and I was meditating on the front of the boat, and everyone was laughing at me. You know, you're on a stag deer, and I'm like, what the hell is he doing up there? What a moron. And I was there, like, in my kind of Buddha pose on the front of the boat, and getting a lot of piss take going on. But I didn't care. I was oblivious. And we um, we came to the rock, and at that point, someone came up to me and said, oh, the captain wants you to touch the island, touch the rock. And, and I turned around and I said, well, why? There's 12 of us on the boat. Why me? And uh, the answer was, the uh, um, the rock wants your energy. So that was very weird and mystical. It's like, what? The rock wants my energy? I didn't know quite what that meant. But when we got there, I've got a video of it, actually. I just kind of put my hand onto the rock, the boat. And, and I just got this. It was like someone had pushed a button in my heart chakra and everything. It was like a shuffling of a pack of cards. It felt like something was realigned. Like in my energy field, something I, 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 it almost was like touching the Buddha's foot. It was like a, and everything. And I, and I just, I got this massive wave of euphoria and I just started jumping around the boat going like, like I'd completed a task or something. It was very mystical. And all I heard was this, this voice just saying, very loud female voice saying, you must purify, you must purify, you must purify. And so, uh, they were all laughing at me. I mean, there's videos. They were just like thinking I'm gone completely nuts. But I knew what it meant, and and, and even more now, because you know I was. This was a, a a blessing, effectively, from this goddess, and 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 a, and a, and a an opportunity to basically like choose a different timeline of my life. From that point, I could either go right. All timelines were available. Is am I gonna? go here and if you you know if you think about kind of quantum quantum physics or it was a it was a quantum a quantum healing moment a quantum uh it was like everything at that moment was possible and what was i going to choose and mm. and when we got back uh to the shore we went to the this place the cotton club and i said to everyone i announced i said right today is the last day i'm drinking it's the last day i'm doing drugs meanwhile i was ordering drugs for everyone because i was i was still organizing the stag day but I kind of, and they all laughed at me. And when I went to the bathroom, I came back and they were, they'd ordered this. They said, Oh, it's your birthday today because you're, you know, it's your new life. And they ordered this big birthday cake and the whole restaurant was singing happy birthday. And it's got my DJ name on it, DJ Dio. And it was like, happy birthday, DJ Dio. And so it was like, it was, it was very symbolic. It was like, wow. And, um, they still were taking the piss, of course, but I knew that this was, you know, serious. And just before we left, there was this very kind of wise looking kind of German, very glamorous kind of couple, older couple with blonde hair and that, lots of linen, you know, and they said, uh, and they just looked at me in a knowing way and they said, oh, you're going out tonight, aren't you? And I said, oh yeah, we're going to the opening of high. Um, this is in 2017. Uh, and they said, make sure you, you leave by 12 o'clock, make sure you get home by 12 o'clock. I mean, it was kind of like, I'm not going to be looking for a glass slip or anything. It's like, <laughs> it's like, but, but it was so weird. They were like, get home by 12. And I didn't know. It was just a little omen, another portent, which, which happens in Ibiza. There's all these mystical doorways and things that happen if you're, if you're open to it, you know, and Ibiza can take you up and it can take you down. And, mm. and it's funny, actually, you've got the, uh, your little ISIS symbol on your, which is, you know, Tanit is basically like ISIS. So, you know, and it's the symbol of eternal life. And you've got the infinity as well, which is about unconditional love and, and, and self love, really. This is what it, this is what it's led me to is about unconditional love and self love. And, and that is the key to everything. But I didn't know that then. So, um, so that night we, we go to this club called Destino, which is a hotel owned by the Pasha group, I think. But anyway, this DJ Guy Gerber was playing. It was amazing. And we're, we're, we're at the bar and this, this woman, uh, these, I get people come over and this woman gets introduced to me and I just saw her as a kind of the human manifestation incarnation of Tanit, this goddess, because she was just, she had this gold hair, aquamarine eyes. She's wearing like a, 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 a cause it's, she's like a sea goddess, like Yemaya, uh, Tanit. And, this coat was like covered in like scales and it was all aquamarine 
And and I just said to her telepathically, I looked at her when I was introduced and I said, hello, Tanit. And she, and she responded with her eyes, hello, Alex. And I was like, whoa, that's trippy. And I wasn't particularly, I wasn't high at that point. And uh, she put her hand on my arm and uh, and I just got this shockwave of energy and I just felt like so, it was just like such peace and such bliss. And I was just like, this is a very, whether she's Tanit or not, she's a very special, highly conscious being. And for me at that moment, she was Tanit and I was happy to see her as that. And she looked at me and she said, oh, you've had a, you've had a really good day today, haven't you? And just knowing with these knowing eyes, got the old Jesus eyes going again. <laughs> you, you had a, re- you had a really lovely day today. And I was like, yes. And she said, oh, where have you been? And I said, well, I think I've been to Atlantis. And she just looked at me and she says, you have. And I was like, Ugh. and it's like, okay. And she said, and how did you get there? And I said, oh, we went by boat. And she said, no, you didn't. She said, you walked there. I was like, what is this a riddle? What am I supposed to do with that? You know, what do you mean you walk there? We got the boat. <laughs> and I look back on it and I think what she was saying was that like you're in, when you're in an energy field of a very special place, whether it's Glastonbury, whether it's the pyramids, you know, you're already in that energy field and you're, and you're receiving the gifts or whether you're open to it or not, you're receiving the gifts of the energy. So, um, so we had this beautiful interchange and I told her that I was going to stop drinking. I was going to purify. And she acknowledged that and said, this is what you need to do. So literally it was 11.55, I, I put, she, they left and I said my, my thank yous and blessings and I put my beer, last beer down and, and I went and sat in the lobby of Destina. It's like 11.58, you know, and I was just about to walk through the door and then I realized that I got about a grand's worth of drugs in my pocket because I'd been organizing this stag do and I got like literally licorice all sorts, whatever you want really was in there, you know, uh, and I thought, you know, I can't walk through that door to the, you know, next stage in my life with all of this in my pocket. So I, I went down to the bathroom, flushed it all down the loo. It wasn't, didn't particularly put me in the good books with, with the crew, but it was Sunday. We'd been there for five days. I mean, Jesus. So, um, and so then I walked through that door, you know, drugs had gone, booze had gone. And, you know, and that's one thing saying you're going to do it, you know, and I know actually being doing it is a whole nother story. And, and, you know, at that point I, I got to, I don't know how I got to the airport, you know, I had a, you know, I had a massive row with all the guys from the stag do because they thought that, you know, I would lost the plot, which I had in a way, but in a good way. And, um, and I got off the flight and I left my laptop, my phone and my wallet on the plane, but I was feeling so Zen. I was just like, uh, and my feet were all cut up because I'd been dancing all night under the stars. So my feet were oozing blood. Blood was dripping through my shoes. I poured tea down my front on the flights so it looked like i pissed myself so I was like literally it was like the hobo airlines like literally <laughs> it was like getting off this flight oh i found enlightenment i've met the goddess uh i am i am the new me and it's literally like the hoboville gets off the flight. <laughs> like i'm like i'm like I was standing in the queue, the EasyJet queue for lost property. And I didn't care. It was like four and I was on that awful 1am flight from Ibiza on a Monday where it's just like, it's just, a, it's just like a war zone. Like all these people, are like, it's just an absolute war zone of detritus and people just wrecked. And, uh, and I didn't care. And I like, I stood in that queue for two hours and I was so zen. And even though I looked like a hobo and, uh, and they said, Oh, it's going to be two. You can't get back on the plane. So you'll be two weeks and we'll let you know. I mean, luckily I got my laptop back with all my music. And I got my, um, I got, what else? I just got my laptop, didn't get anything else, but I still had the car key. I should never have been driving because the car was in the valet. So I thought, wow, it's great. You know, my wife's going to be really chuffed to see me. <laughs> so I get in the car about four, four thirty and, uh, and I had just enough fuel to get, to get, uh, to get home about 40 miles fuel. So I'm bopping along, you know, the sun's coming up and I get a bit emotional thinking about what's just happened and the decision I've made, you know, the sobriety. And um, and I start weeping. I'm listening to tunes. I just start weeping and tears just rolling down my face. It's a big emotional release, you know. This is, you know, 35 years of, 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 of you know, mistreating myself through, or using misusing alcohol and drugs. It's like I've made this decision and I've had this epiphany and it's just so amazing. And I shoot straight past the turning <laughs> and my tears are going down. She's like, oh, that's, 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 you know, I'm home is that way. And I'm on the M20 heading towards Dover. I was like, oh shit. And I'm just like, fuck. <laughs> so anyway, so I said, right, if I get the next turning, I might just roll home. Anyway, in my kind of fit of peak, cause I'm so annoyed, I missed the next turning. And, <laughs> and now I'm like, I'm heading towards Dover, like Thelma and Louise, you know, <laughs> got, got zero fuel. 
and and I'm just like about to run out of fuel on the motorway, and and suddenly I see at Ashford, uh, I see the H sign for the hospital. And I think, oh, brilliant, awesome! A- I can go to A and E. I can get my feet bandaged up. I can I can call my wife. I can have a cup of tea. So I pull in and I I literally roll into into A and E Ashford, and the gate was down. It's like, where am I going to park? I'm going to get a ticket. Blah blah blah. So I circle around the uh, I circle around the. Uh, hospital once and i come back around i've never seen this before i come out the gate is magically up to the car park like the weird there was did it go love it was bonkers i didn't see it go up but i just came around again and it was just like this is your rock bottom come here yes thank you so uh so i pulled in literally ran out of petrol and i was just like stop the car you know no fuel no wallet no keys no dignity, you know, the hobo had arrived, you know, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I kind of walked into A&E and the woman looked at me and goes, Oh, hello. Can I help you, sir? Oh yes, we've got you. Uh, what's happened to you? And I said, it's a long story. I've been on a little bit of a bender. Uh, and yeah, I just need to, and my feet bandaging up. Oh really? What's happened to your feet? Oh, well, I was, uh, I was dancing around the swimming pool for six hours, raising the mermaids. Trying to fan it for a couple. <laughs> and she said, Oh, um, you'll you'll think to wear shoes next time won't you oh, <laughs> she, goes, God. she goes yeah and my, they're like they're literally blood dripping through my shoes and she's like she's like uh and you know the tea stain and she said oh i said another thing do you think it was about six she, do you think you can call my wife and you know let her know that i'm here and she goes are you sure about that sir uh, <laughs> and i said yeah yeah she, she, she'll be really happy to see me i mean how deluded was i and um and then, so she called up. She goes, "Oh yes, Mrs. Hill, Mrs. Norwood Hill, we've got your got your husband here." I wouldn't rush. Yes, uh. <laughs> it's like have a nice breakfast, and when you're ready, come come to Annie. But just take your time, you know. Yeah, with a can of petrol. Yeah, yeah, a can of petrol, and and the keys to the uh, to the, the shed where he's going to be living for the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh so that was my rock bottom, and and, and you know, and I. I, I was very lucky. I told you before that a very great friend of mine, mum's is this guy from the music industry called Chris Briggs. You know, he's Robbie Williams, A&R, amazing guy. And he, um, he, you know, he got sober in 1990, you know, and he was in the music industry. I mean, he was, you know, imagine what that must've been like, you know, in the, you know, um, so he put me in touch with an amazing guy called Chip Summers, who I'm, I promise I will put you in touch with. I keep meaning to do that WhatsApp chat, but so Chip, uh had done a lot of work with focus 12 and with russell brand and worked with a lot of people in the music industry and i went to see him and i was thinking about going to the priory and he's like you don't need rehab you're fine what you need is a 12-step program and 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 come and see me and yeah and we did and i did aa for a bit i did it for a couple of years and it was great at the beginning it didn't really ultimately work out for me i don't feel it's it's quite i don't identify in that way as having a disease and an alcoholic i'm i have an unhealthy relationship with with you know i have an addictive nature i have i've just been diagnosed with adhd as well so i i know what i'm working with but at the time you know i went into chip's office and he just said right let's let's unpack let's do let's unpack let's take your suitcases of all your trauma and all your stuff unpack it so that you know you've walked in you know you can't function if you're walking around with like Amelda Marcos with like hundreds of suitcases of trauma. You can't go through the doors of life, but when you unpack it all and realize it's not, you know, you honor it and you go, Oh, this is, this happened to me and this happened to me. And yes, of course you would feel like that. Of course you would do that. Of course you would use drugs. This is, you know, this is normal. And then, you know, you put pack it all back in having dispelled it and reduced it. And you end up leaving after a year and a half with chip with a little shoulder pack, you know, it's still your stuff, you know, you never, you don't, you don't suddenly become a different person because you work through your stuff in therapy. What you do is you, it's on your shoulder, but you know, you can go through the doors of life with a little shoulder pack and, and it's amazing. You know, it's like, that's my stuff. This, I love that. Yeah. yeah it's a good, I really love that analogy actually. And as most people know, I do love an analogy. So I'm yeah. still, I'll nick that one. Thank you yeah, very please much. Please do. Please uh, do. And Chip is an amazing man as well. He, he's, uh, I've seen him on a few documentaries lately as well. Mm. He's an incredible guy. And you're, you're celebrating over six years of sobriety now, yes. aren't you? Yeah, yeah, six years. On the 20, 29th of May was that day, that fateful day in Ibiza. And, um, yeah, six years. So I'm so grateful, you know, so much gratitude, so much joy. 
you know, being part of the sober community, you know, founding Sober Sommelier, you know, doing, sharing my drinks, sharing my story, mm. helping people, helping this whole sober movement, um, you know, creating my little alcohol-free drink, Cordus. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go on to talk about that because um, I genuinely like to make these last about an hour because people listen to them yeah. on the way to work or in the gym and whatnot. But I don't want to leave you before we talk about that because I've actually tried that and it is an absolutely beautiful drink. So before we go, do you want to tell the listeners how you've created this? It kind of comes back to what we were talking about in a way about my my connection to the drinks industry. And and if people want to find out about what I'm doing, they can just go on my Instagram, go to Sober Sommelier and just click on my link tree and it shows all the various things I'm doing. So Sober Sommelier is really about sharing amazing drinks, sharing, you know, I do pop-up bars. Um, I've just done one at Fire and Alchemy, which which married uh, my healing work, which is Reiki. I'm a Reiki practitioner, Reiki master. I also am a crystal healer. I've got a big crystal here just to show you. This is one of my favorites here. Wow. So that's look at that. That's, that's a Lemurian, Brazilian Lemurian. I tra- trained under an amazing, oh, I'll put my face there, trained under an amazing crystal teacher called Katie Jane Wright of And Crystals, and you can look her up. And um, so I've trained under her. I also trained under Margaret West as an angelic Reiki practitioner. So basically what happened was I couldn't find a, a drink that I really liked um, that had the same mouthfeel as, as great alcoholic drinks, you know, that viscosity, that texture. Uh, and I wanted to make something that was like an aperitif that I could mix with spa- alcohol-free sparkling wine or tonic. And I happened to find a distillery in France that made this uh, a, a kind of base liquid using a gentian, which is a bitter root. Uh, and I was looking for, a, a, when I created the drink, I was looking for a, um, a kind of origin story about someone that had discovered gentian and what it does and was using it in the 1500s. And I found this amazing guy called Valerius Cordus, who is, um, please look him up. He's the... He, he, he wrote these pharmacopias, these books, these herbals, um, uh, and you was using ether, was using stills, um, a hundred years before John French was in, in the 1500s. He's a Renaissance man. And I found a beautiful book at Kew Gardens that he'd illustrated gentian in the 1500s. And that's actually what's on the logo is, I know it's back to front, but on the logo, there is a, uh, this, this thing here is the gentian is the gentian plant and yeah. so he's an alchemist really uh cordus and and that's that's the magic behind the drink is that it's made with amazing botanicals and and alcohol-free bitters but then once i once i make the blend i then use crystals to grid it and t- to charge it and then i also use uh, uh angelic reiki or reiki to raise its vibration so whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter, but it does raise your vibration. So it's marrying, it's marrying energy and healing work with, uh, with a beautiful drink that tastes delicious and you can have it with tonic. So, and this is actually what I, what I realize now is that, you know, this is a, a kind of actually going to be a new ca- ca- category. These uh, energetic drinks that are, uh, high freak, high frequency drinks that, ha- that actually give you that sense of, you know, working in your energy field because we are physical but we're also energetic beings we have an aura we have chakras we have a frequency and a lot of a lot of the stuff you know 95 percent, 99 8 percent of stuff in life is unseen like our eyes are very limited in terms of what we can see but when we close our eyes and we visualize and we and we can look through our third eye we can see we can visualize and imagine so much and on that unseen world um is 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 very important both for our mental, physical, psychological, and spiritual health. Um, so that's something I'm very much advocate and, and I'm doing that working with individuals and, and groups, uh, with group meditation. So mm. just, just recently, uh, we did a, an event at Club Soda, uh, called Sober Sound System where we incorporated this. We had giant crystals in each corner of the room. It was a very high frequency. We made a pyramid of lights. So everyone that came in had their aura cleared with aura spray. Um, and they had their tuning fork. So they had their frequency, their, their auras cleared. They came in and we had high frequency drinks such as Cordus and then amazing music. So it's, it's creating this kind of space where, um, you know, people can really let go of things that their, their baggage when they come in through using aura sprays or anointing oils. Um, and then come in and just really enjoy themselves in a high frequency sober environment where they're making genuine connection. 
And Club Soda have invited us to come back and do another Sober Sound System in September. So, yeah, if you if you want to come, I highly recommend it because it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun and it and it is it's very life affirming and very uplifting because we are mm. raising our vibration mm. as part of our process on this earth is to raise our vibration and raise our consciousness. Uh, and I feel like I'm kind of doing that in my in my process and in my in my kind of mission through the drinks through and just recently finally um i did a, an amazing thing at um this was uh at fire and alchemy which is a, a kind of consciousness kind of healing space with and crystal shop and we basically we did a drinks that were linked to crystals so it was like a cocktail conscious cocktails and crystal workshop so golden healer tourmaline and lemurian so i created a menu I created a menu that was linked and infused with crystal energy, uh, which was an absolute first, uh, groundbreaking first. And, and that's going to be happening again at Fire and Alchemy. So it's all, it's all on my link tree, but anyway, a big, wonderful. And, and, uh, is this drink called us available now? So you can, you can get it directly from me and I'm going to be doing in September, like a small batch. So yeah. So if you just email me, if you want to try it, uh, or go to the website, um, at, I think cordusdrinks.com and just request, um, I, I can, I, I can like small batch. I can do it individually. And, but soon I'm going to do larger batches. Well, what I do, I'll put all, all the uh, notes and links on the show notes of this episode. Amazing. And um, we could talk forever. I know that, Alex. And if anyone wants to watch this video, it's on my YouTube channel, um, on my bio, on my Instagram as well, at Sober Dave. And they can find you at Sober Somalia on Instagram. We're going to put all your Indeed. links on there. You're a fantastic guy with hilarious stories, mate. But the, what I've got from this as well, we can tell all these stories and glamorize it all. Mm. But you did get yourself in in a really bad way with it and you've found a way out and six years of sobriety now and you're helping so many people you're an amazing man uh, and i'm really grateful that you've you've come on today so thank oh, you so much alex all right and, and we'll get together soon i can't wait all right thank you mate thanks for Take joining care. it's been a pleasure i really hope you enjoyed the show today don't forget to subscribe and leave a review For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.